You are listening to the Academy Revival Podcast. This is Drew, resident of the Montevilla neighborhood and huge fan of the Academy Theater, here with Doorman, the person spearheading revival programming at Academy. What's up? Hey, Drew. All right. This is a review episode for some of the August programming at Academy. We're going to start with a rousing discussion of David Lynch's Blue Velvet, followed by a short and sweet look back at the horror series pick, Madman. Coming soon, we'll have a whole episode, a whole review episode dedicated to the Deep Cut series from uh, series selection from August big Wednesday. We had a lot to talk about there, so we'll have that episode for you soon. But in the meantime, we are so excited to get into one of our favorite movies, Blue Velvet. She wore blue So you've never seen this movie before, right? <laughs> well, maybe once or twice a week for um, a formative period of my life. But yeah, you know. Maybe. Okay. So suffice it to say that you're a big fan and yep. you're familiar with this movie. And so am I. I. You know, I love this movie. I think, you know, as I said in the preview, I think it is a masterpiece. Just straight and simple. So let's let's talk about this screening. You know, we, we yeah. actually were at this screening together. We definitely. were. Um, unplanned too That's fine. yeah and uh so how was the screening for you 4k dcp beautiful image we get the little um message at the start of the film um geeking out on yeah. how they sourced the print and how they you know um formalized the uh, the sound and if you want to speak to any of that you can um, but i i just love kind of seeing the care and the thought that that goes into restoring some of these prints, um, even stuff that's not super old. So you go from that like black screen with white lettering, obviously maybe there's like the curtains and then the movie opens on the beautiful blues and reds of like the suburban um, neighborhood and the fire truck going by. Like it's, it's a, um, Wizard of Oz esque like um, journey into Technicolor. It it feels like it's not Technicolor, but it has that effect of just like immersing you in in color, so that we can be thrown into darkness later. So that doesn't really answer this question about the ambiance of the screening. It was we had a, a um, we were sitting at different ends of the theater. Uh, my girlfriend likes to sit super close, so we were. Um, near the front and there was a row behind us that was mostly full and, and they were big uh, Lynch fans. They were geeking out before the movie. They were like um, ooing and aahing during the movie, which if you've seen this as many times as me, all kind of additional input is welcome. I don't need to be <laughs> like, I don't need to have a undisturbed viewing of this and they weren't disturbing. They were just, they were just into it. I, I had a great time seeing it at Academy. Yeah, it was really awesome to see it with the crowd um, and hear uh, people laughing and, and, and also in the disturbing parts to be in around other people. Um, 
and you, you know mentioned uh, the beginning sequence. So let's just talk about that with yeah. with the different colors. You know, we have the picket fence, we have the flowers, and the firemen, and and that was something that really there's a word that really sort of uh, stuck in my mind with this screening, which was ritual, and mm. it really felt like the. Uh, beginning and the end was this ritual of sequences of images that was supposed to take you into the world of blue velvet and out of the world of blue velvet. I don't think that that's a crazy analogy, but it just, to me, what was striking about thinking about the, the ritual of going in and out was that it paralleled and corresponded with other rituals in the movie, most notably in the scene and we can talk yeah. about that but i really think that um uh frank booth has a ritual that he's performing and it's to me it was echoed in that that ex- the sequence that david lynch uses as a device to take us in and out of the blue velvet world yeah and what's and what i always point out about this movie um to people when I'm frequently annoying them with talk about david lynch movies is like he's a very surrealist filmmaker, very dreamlike narrative. Some stories uh, and plot points don't always like add up or use linear uh, or go in a linear way. And this movie, it really is linear. And if you look at the opening sequence in the end, sort of as a, as a frame, the, the end is the thing that feels like um, a break or, you know, like a separate, tone than the rest of the movie when you're really immersed in the the darkness of of this journey that that um uh Kyle McLaughlin's character Jeffrey's going on and and yeah like the the darkness of Frank Booth infecting him and and him like his sexual impulses getting the best of him and and just his wanting to figure out all these these mysteries like definitely a nice little Prequel, unofficial prequel to Twin Peaks <laughs> with Agent Dale Cooper. Don't be a good neighbor to her. I'll send you a love letter. Straight from my heart, fucker! You know what a love letter is? It's a bullet from my fucking gun, fucker! You receive a love letter from me, you're fucked forever! One point you made that I want to respond to is the logic. The logic of this movie really stuck out to me this time. This is a tightly crafted movie that is blunt. Yep, It's easy to follow. It's a simple story that's great. Um, And I think that um, it's interesting to me the director the directorial choice he makes of how blunt and how blatant to make the storyline um a lot of art house movies a lot of creative movies um make it much more obscure and, how to well, even lynch's own movies and exactly yeah. this this movie is is a a, a very uh surface level movie in some ways uh and that's just parallels his style. So, you know, you mentioned some of Lynch's style and Twin Peaks and stuff. And so to me, I this is my favorite direct uh, David Lynch movie. And the reason it is is because it's the birth of the David Lynch style and it's my favorite David Lynch story. But in addition, it's, it's you're getting those two things, but 
it's also encapsulated in a unit that Lynch has full full control over, unlike Twin Peaks. So Twin yep. Peaks to me is a, a basically uh, Blue Velvet, the TV show in a lot of ways. And um, unfortunately, it kind of goes off the rails and uh, Lynch loses control of it. And um, it just becomes... Uh, riddled with problems because of trying to sustain an episodic yeah. storyline. This does not have that problems. It's a perfect arc that's paced and sequenced really well. Um, you know, the editor is Dwayne Dunham, hmm. Return of the Jedi. Um, so we have some big names here. Um, we have cinematography from Frederick Elms, who did Eraserhead, also Valley Girl. But it really feels... I think it real. I really think the parallel with Twin Peaks is just firm because of the music. You know, we got yeah. An- Angelo uh, Badalamenti with Julie Cruz, and that just with the surrealism, it just feels like Twin Peaks. Kyle MacLachlan is here. You know, it, it's inex it's inescapable how intertwined it is with Twin Peaks. Um, And I just think it's much more successful as a complete work. Um, And that's, and and that's why, but uh, to me, why I love this movie, it's really the core mystery of the crazy idea of meeting somebody in a diner and planning out that you're going to sneak into this person's home and having that fantasy play out and that fantasy go way, way south. In addition to this, this core awesome idea, it's completely overwhelmed. And I think this is what, uh, in general, a lot of people respond to with Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet with this stylistic aesthetic that is beyond compelling. So that's what I'm saying is this movie would be a four star movie, even if it didn't have a great story. Um, But to me, it's a five star movie because of the combination of the two. Um, And it's one of the best stories of all time. But the style is just off the charts. This is just an immaculate vision that's coming from a guy who's trained as a painter. So this is an artist giving his vision in film form. Yeah, in taking like little snippets of inspiration and um, kind of just piecing it. A lot of his other movies do feel more pieced together um, and transport you into kind of like a dreamlike state. Whereas this one, yeah, it's Kyle McLaughlin is walking home from visiting his his dad who's got a lot of braces on his body <laughs> for whatever um, ailment he's going through and, and finds a severed ear in uh, the woods when he's, you know, tossing rocks at, at bottles like like uh, young boys do. <laughs> um, and, and so from there he's hooked like he he takes it to the police but he's and they tell them uh, who the police captain happens to be lord Dern's dad so that like links them up and and i really loved detective williams yeah i wanted to mention him uh george dickerson he's a great character actor in this his facial expressions really add a lot to the story and he it's it's immediately put you off kilter when when jeffrey delivers him the the ear in a brown paper bag like a lunch bag um he tells him there's an ear in there and 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 the detective opens it up and says yep that's an ear and the crowd the crowd went wild that was was a great moment and it's just like that's the kind of performance lynch always gets out of actors whether it's you know a woman like 
dancing on the car. Like it's these weird, memorable um, line readings, and but they all feel consistent with the world. Um, and it's it it that's what takes you into the the surat sur, uh, surreal aspect of the world. But the story that they're trying to figure out is basically you know who's how is this singer Isabella Rossellini's character, you know, yeah. Dorothy Valens, um, involved in the uh, goings on of Frank Booth's character, and then Kyle McLaughlin is immediately like thrust in the middle because, you know, of the scene. I guess the the stuff leading up to the scene, <laughs> right? And I think you hit upon an interesting point, which was. Uh, Lynch getting specific performances out of his actors and in the special features, I thought it was really interesting. Um, the special features of the Criterion Blu-ray, and it's really awesome that uh, we can revisit his work in this format. Criterion did a great job on all these movies, um, and it was interesting in the special features to learn a little bit more about his directing style. And I guess you probably know, but he was sort of using abstract concepts and being like more wind you know? <laughs> exactly. uh, and saying stuff like that uh, with his actors to allow them the creativity of interpretation um, and to resonate with them on a, on a different level than just a, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a more academic uh, character analysis approach. Um, and that to me really reminded me of uh, when we were talking about switchblade sisters and we talked about Jack Hill's style. I don't know if we talked about that in the episode or not, but Jack Hill's style is very different than, um, you know, maybe like John Huston or some of these traditional um, directors where you have a lot of um, rehearsals and they're very much rigorous. And maybe Brian De Palma's movies are like this too. They're meticulously trying to abstract a vision that's very, very concrete. Mm -hmm. And they're not leaving a lot of room for the actors to be creative. Here, Jack Hill and David Lynch are really trying to uh, leave some looseness here for the actors to play around with their characters and do something. And uh, I think John Milius and Big Wednesday does something similar too. But it's just it's just cool to know which side of the tracks um, Lynch stood on that. And I, you know, I think it was kind of obvious because he's such a creative guy that he's going to want as much creativity as possible from the collaborators he has. But um, yeah, well, obviously, Kyle McLaughlin and him have been working together for. A long time. Um, Laura Dern said has like gushed over just the experience of, of of working with him and Naomi Watts as well. Like so, the actors definitely seem very inspired by his energy and you know like the essay that comes with the the Criterion um, Blu-ray. Yeah, goes into his uh, meditation habits. He's very, um, a huge proponent of transcendental meditation. That's mm. part of the source of his creativity, he says, but also they would say that like he would go into his trailer at lunchtime or early afternoon and come out like a uh, glowing and exuberant with, with energy and just like always, he would ride around the set on a bicycle with like M&Ms in his pocket. He just has this, like this kind of like kid, like wonder. Right. He does to, have a naivete. Yes. A naivete. Yeah. Exactly. And, and like, and he's sort of, you could, you could project that onto the Jeffrey character. Um, of course, he's kind of on this journey of, of, um, 
being exposed to things that to darkness that he's never been exposed to before and doesn't exactly handle it, um, handle it how he would like to. (laughs) Um, but his big exposure is, is the, the scene. Oh, Oh, mommy, mommy, mommy. Baby wants to fuck. Uh, 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 get ready to fuck! You fuckers, fucker! You fucker! Uh, 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 don't you fucking look at me! So we have a director here who's doing his fourth movie and just having an eruption of uh, making a personal, personal film. And it's kind of like uh akin to maybe somebody who is um got a lot of ideas and worked for years and years and years and finally gets an opportunity to really display them and go to town and yep. and so this is his fourth movie so he starts with Eraserhead and um it's kind of famous that Eraserhead just took forever to make and was a passion project of his and it's definitely David Lynch going to town and in a personal visionary way yes um but it's taking forever and it's it's the most independent venture and it's his first film um, and so by the time it's completed, it, it's not like he's uh, becoming, and it's so weird. It's so out there. It's not like he's becoming a household name from that. But it's enough. It is a real film, and, it, and it's a beautiful film, and it, it's enough attention-grabbing that when uh, he's looking for the next project, his second movie, Elephant Man, comes along, he does something that's much straighter, mm-hmm. and it gains him the attention that he didn't get from Eraserhead. And so with that, he does what he's a good director is supposed to do, which is do the super big movie, which is Dune, and that basically takes three and a half years of his soul yep. out, and it wasn't a uh, it was in some ways a failure. And so it, it's not a total failure. It's a David Lynch movie. Do you um, know what he what he turned down to do d- during that same timeline instead of instead of uh what he could have done instead of Dune? No, what did he do? Um uh, Empire Strikes Back. Oh my goodness. He was offered Empire. <laughs> yeah, that, I mean that's Weird. the lore. I've I've heard yeah. it repeated over and over again that right. like just because of of Elephant those Man. two very independent movies. I mean, well, one independent movie and one, you know, black and white biopic to go from that to star wars he said he couldn't connect with the star wars source material but he could he could find enough i guess in dune's um property to connect with but they're giant leaps yeah and they're um it's kind of supernatural the story of david lynch getting sort of recognized by mel brooks and then dino de laurentis with dune and so now Dino is giving him, it's almost another sort of supernatural, like if we were going to make a biopic of David Lynch, it's just incredible, these opportunities that he's he has. It's kind of perfect. It's almost an ideal career. And after this, you know, kind of colossal, expensive failure that he has, and I'm going to use the word failure in quotes here because I really think it's debatable and that Dune is an interesting work that should be examined, but it's clear that it wasn't what he he didn't get out of it what he learned about final cut in that movie um and right. um and he uses that in blue velvet to strike another deal with dino and to make the 
the personal vision that he's really always wanted to make and that he has the maturity now that he couldn't make just right off the bat with Eraserhead. He needed to go through these stages to get to a point where he could develop a radical style with a radical story and just blow everything out of the water. To contrast that off the camera or that onset, you know, happy-go-lucky, naive persona, um, he also writes some really dark shit, so and then films it, and then gets his performers to you know <laughs> take it up in another level. So, Kyle McLaughlin sneaks into um, uh, Dorothy's apartment after he you know poses as a pest control person and steals a key. And anyway, he's it's his... a plan that they hatch in a really beautiful diner scene, yep. and I, I love that. One of my favorite lines is. Don't you even want to hear the plan? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he, his um, infatuation with with just like Sandy, she, she don't be that way. She asks him point blank, "You really like mysteries, don't you?" And he's like, "Yeah, I guess I do." And uh, that's a little like wink. I mean, an unknowing wink of like, "Oh, maybe you'll be a detective one day." He's yeah. basically, you know, going in the footsteps of the detective in this movie. So. Um, and often kind of, you know, mucking up their case, arguably. Yeah, it's it's he's <laughs> he's the archetypal amateur inept detective. Yeah. Which yeah. is in many thrillers. Blow and, blow out not being an exception. And his amateur um skills are on full display when they like instead of going to the apartment when yeah. she's performing and clearly away, they go to the show, they wait till what seems like of the last song. And then leave to go to her apartment and sneak in. So he's in her closet when, not surprisingly to me, she shows uh, up. She shows up, and so he ha- or he's in her apartment. So he has to hide in the closet, sees her um, in various states of undress. So here's a question I have for you yeah. about that: is so he says, you know, she's like, "Yo, Sandy, I'm gonna pick you up and stuff," and she's like, oh, "Well, I have a date with Mike," and he's like, "Well, I guess." And I love Mike and the <laughs> yeah. whole thing. It's great. Oh, his, oh, his jumping that. jacks yeah. on the on the tennis court for yeah. football practice were. Yeah. So he gets her to break the date with Mike, and he's like, "Oh, great! I'll pick you up at eight. We'll have a really nice yeah. dinner." So, do you think the really nice dinner is the slow club? Or do we skip the nice dinner and this is the the nightcap that is about to set up that? So the Heineken is the nice dinner. Yeah, Yeah. I was like, where's this nice dinner? Did we miss it? Did we we not get to see the dinner? Are they hungry? Are they are they really hungry this whole time? You know, because it's just he needs to eat. Yeah, they don't. They're at the diner repeatedly, but don't really eat. They're Lynch's diet and the diet of his characters commonly consist of coffee and pie. So, um, and M&Ms, I guess, but yeah, that's a great question. I, my answer would be uh, either they ate at the slow club before we pick up with them or they just had Heineken's for, for dinner because immediately after that, he asks her like, well, maybe we can find out where she's, she's playing and we'll, we'll make that our, our date. So they, they spend the, the, their perfect window of time which is a very important scene because he's already infatuated with her after he sees her perform. Yep. So even before he sees her undressing in front of him unknowingly right. um, on the phone with um, what we'll learn is Frank Booth kind of having a disturbing phone call, yeah. just kind of a little bit manic after she gets back. Um, I always kind of flip in my head, like the order of this sequence, but um, so it surprised me a little bit like that they have such a drawn out 
interaction before Frank Booth shows up. Like they almost um, get physical. Um, they do get physical. She like basically turns the tables on him because he's been spying on her. He she makes him undress and is performing some kind of act <laughs> on him, and then um, that's when Frank um, shows up at the house. So he has to go back into the closet, um, and watch what happens next. <laughs> yeah. And to me, the setup for this scene, and this is why, you know, again, I call this, these movies with the scene and we can debate about this, but I put in this camp deliverance, the fun house. Um, and this is where a scene that happens, that's a cinematic grenade being thrown to the audience. And all of it is, uh, the, the first, is lead up to the scene and everything else that happens is reference afterwards and dominoes falling down consequence yeah. from it. And so they set it up with this mystery of, I just want to sneak into their apartment and it's just, oh, this, fun and games. Uh, it, well, it's just this stupid idea that everyone would be sort of scared shitless to do but because we're in the comfort of a movie theater it's fun to see them watch it out and it's just completely you know insane what happens when he sneaks in and so this scene is all through the blinds and what we get is uh dennis hopper showing up after you going to rehab so this is dennis hopper bursting back on to the cinema screen in a very best behavior off screen exactly a complete maniac in front of the camera exactly (laughs) and um he was dying for this role this was role he was born for and um when we get there you know it's basically a, a ritualistic sexual assault that we're watching I'm just shocked and uh, it's it's always been gripping to me but the first time I saw this movie I just couldn't believe that we were going to the place that we were going yeah. to here um, and it's so weird all of the different um, you know daddy baby all the different weird stuff that Frank makes yeah, well the do. oxygen mask turns him into like almost a comic villain a comic book level villain because he's got a you know like a facial prop um, so I'm going to be, I'm going to assume that you're familiar, obviously, with the scene and that most of the people watching this have seen this movie, or listening to this, have seen the movie. And so when I was watching the scene this time, two things came into my mind, which was how effective would this scene be if Isabella Rossellini didn't have an accent? You know, I really think that the way she talks and the way she delivers her lines um, and her accent just create this strange quality you know do you like me do you you want to touch me feel me you know just her halting way of doing it is just really really uh heightens the mood um and then the other thing was would the scene be as effective without the nitrous without the uh, the uh, the nitrous oxide the, the gas that he's huffing and it was interesting in the special features to learn that originally it was helium and David Lynch just wanted him to have a high pitched oh, voice, well, which is kind of bizarre. It, and then yeah. Hopper was like, "Hey, I know about this weird thing that sexually deviant people do uh, with the with the nitrous, and you know, maybe we should do that instead." And and Lynch was like, "Oh, that's a cool idea. You know, let's do that." And it's just wow. I mean, if it was just the nitrous, I mean, it would just be so much more comical, so weird. Um, if it was helium, yeah. If it yeah. was or if it was helium, yeah, it would be so so different. I mean, he already does such a heightened voice and performance anyway just on the oxygen that that would have maybe lynch is always finding that line of like 
is it going to, unless he wants you to laugh or, or be taken out of the moment a little bit, like this is supposed to be scary and it is, but that would have pushed it to the point of like comic absurdity, I assume. Yep. So, so yeah, it is, it is a, a sexual assault. It is, um, him like maybe you could read into we don't ever learn anything about um frank booth's backstory but it's a it's pretty um uh, armchair psychology to say he has uh mother issues or <laughs> freudian yeah. <laughs> yeah something to that effect and and um he also like puts the the blue velvet fabric into into his mouth so there are like all sorts of rituals involved and then he sort of like dry humps her like a rabbit and and it's over very quickly and like all of this mclaughlin um jeffrey's character um is watching through the blinds like you said i mean at any point do you think he's paralyzed for good reason because of how crazy the situation is but he also should feel guilty about not trying to help right right and i think that that comes out um in the joyride scene. So, you know, we yeah. also have another pretty intense scene with Frank where, um, Hey neighbor, <laughs> go for a ride. Yeah. You're from the neighborhood. Uh, yeah. And, uh, he, um, punches Frank when he can't take it anymore. So he starts, you know, fucking around with Isabella Rossellini and then he just leave her alone. And then he punches him. And then that's when Frank takes him out of the car and smacks him up. Yeah. I mean, he beats him almost to, to um uh, to near death i mean not near death he bounces back pretty quickly but they probably should have killed him i guess the reason that they don't um i was talking to my girlfriend about this is just that they probably underestimate his you know like ability to um you disrupt anything they're doing clearly they're uh, capable of 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 murder and kidnapping and 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 cutting off people's ears but they basically just beat him up real good and then leave him out there and and uh preceding that is the great like uh scene where they go to um maybe a drug dealer's apartment and he sing he like lip syncs um the roy orbison song in dreams one of the best scenes ever yeah it just it, incredible scene and it kind of um is a recurring motif in lynch's work either characters are singing or singing but they're actually lip syncing like in Mulholland drive famously yeah and um, we could just go through that's every what I'm movie yeah. we could go through every single scene in this movie and talk about how exquisite it is yeah I but mean, I, we won't do that yeah we won't but i mean it's important that we talked a little bit about the scene because that was a controversial scene you know dino said he had to start his own film distribution company in order to get this movie in theaters because nobody would touch it and lynch had a final cut on a handshake you know this was the vision that he wanted to put out into the world and it's frankly it's really punk rock like the fact that he is putting his all into this and he's subverting he's using it's very subversive the fact that he's just throwing this into this movie um it's it's very intense um and the 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 things that he's trying to say about himself and about society um it's not as clear-cut as the logic and that's what's really fascinating to me about this movie is that you can interpret this this story 
um, in an abstract way and have many different interpretations because the the characters are still doing symbolic things even even though it's so blunt you don't need to have uh, ambiguity here to work for you in order um, like plot ambiguity in order to create um, a deeper more um, varied interpretation of what's going on he's got other things like nuanced characters doing all that work for him before we get to the lunchtime yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> the, the thing i want to say yeah yeah so uh first of all i totally forgot about the robin speech yeah. and that was just hilarious i mean i couldn't stop laughing and it was so great to see it in a in a theater with people after the pandemic it just felt like a beautiful moment in the theater that i'll just kind of remember um from this se- this programming season um it was great and it really you know i've been thinking about music i mean movies a lot more symbolically lately just as i watch them and One, she said that scene, you know, um, I saw it with my roommate and she thought she had seen this movie. And so we didn't like tell her anything about it. And then she realized she totally hadn't. And so she kind of went in blind and was just sort of flipping out like, what is going on? What is going on? And it was great. And it was really fun. Um, And uh, during that scene, it was just sort of like a throw up your hands in the air of like, what are you talking about? These Robins and the light. And so to me, something that really stuck out with this screening was that obviously she's a symbol of purity you know and the way she comes out of the darkness you know oh yeah that's so dramatic the first yeah first it's a classic lynch classic lynch and the other end of the spectrum is that we have frank booth as a symbol of impurity he is ultimate evil and i think that when you said like why does he beat him up and not kill him and stuff? It's well, you know, for me, it's the motivation of his character is that he can just do whatever the hell he wants to anytime he wants to. And he can drive really fast. He's not going to get pulled over. If he does, he wouldn't care. He could just, you know, do whatever he wants. So the fact that he can just beat you up and leave you alive and there would be no consequences of it is just his style here. You're nothing in comparison to his will to do whatever. He's also, um, not, uh, not to interrupt, but like, he's also, he literally says, you know, you're not that much different than me. And he's infecting uh, McLaughlin's character with some of his evil by leaving him alive. He like can still have some power and influence over the world because he probably thinks he's like permanently damaged this person who will turn into, you know, like, like he has all these other um, people in his orbit that he's drugged down to his level. And so now, I agree with that. And I to get to sort of the end of the movie, there's a moment at the beginning of the chase where we think it is Frank that's yep. chasing them and not Mike. And then there's the fear that goes through everybody's mind of, oh, Frank is going to catch up with them and do some crazy shit, not just to Kyle, but to Sandy. Yeah. And that's where that's the line that David Lynch doesn't cross. So we don't get yeah, Sandy. She's never really in danger. She never comes into contact with Frank. Yeah. They're two different worlds. The Black Lodge, the White Lodge. They are not connected. And that's, I think, the masterstroke of this movie, which is we get that one little taste, that one little thought of, oh, my God, Sandy is going to get um, you know, brutalized by this maniac. And he doesn't go there. He tricks you. It's Mike. It's just Mike, yep. guys. And then 
the interesting thing is then we get that weird shocking scene of Isabella's Isabella Rossellini um, standing there naked in front of his house yeah which uh, was quite the spectacle in Wilmington for people lining up and down the streets when they were filming that apparently right <laughs> absolutely and it's taken from Lynch's childhood like a lot of these images were I guess yeah. he was riding his bike and saw a, a naked woman in the street and it really left a big impression on him um, but then you know but we, that scene is so upsetting because she is completely broken at this point and i mean she's physically as vulnerable as you can be because she's got these like spotlights or you know exterior lights shining on her naked body but emotionally she's just completely shot at this point as well so she collapses into Kyle McLaughlin's arms the love triangle that's sort of been you know uh under the surface becomes apparent to Sandy that i mean you know like it plays out and some of these beats are very familiar, but like you said, with the execution of the original Frank Booth scene, it just keeps you on your toes at every moment. Like, okay, we know he's going to eventually get busted for um, this love triangle he's maintaining, but the way that he, that she finds out is so shocking and disturbing and her mom's there like <laughs> like uh, there's a naked woman sandy and her mom while uh, while um uh isabella rossellini's character saying you know you put your disease in me like in front of her mom <laughs> it's just very striking dialogue yeah. very stays with you um and then you know we get to the one of the other hearts of uh, focal hearts of this movie is that Kyle McLaughlin's character development, you know, there's the scene where he hits Isabella Rossellini, you yep. know, so he is not a symbol of purity. He is not a symbol of impurity. He's a symbol of curiosity. That's trying to be a force for good and fix a really broken situation. And in, basically uh, what I'm seeing is that in order to do that, he has to confront a dark place in himself you know, it, it's sort of like you need to die in order to be reborn. Um, and so by the ending point, you know, we have the Robin killing the beetle, you know, and that's that's what we see. You know, it's it's lunchtime, you know, and that's a David Lynch thing. You know, we go to Bob's Big Boy for lunch, you know, and that's how we end this movie. It, it's it's we're all just we're happy the the mystery is over. We can all have lunch now sun is is glowing again and yeah the robin has arrived to literally you know um chomp down on on the evil beetle all of that is so tidy and it was predicted in sandy's speech dream speech that that robins would arrive um and the darkness would lift like you can't not question the reality of that scene Absolutely. i don't think it really matters because the rest of the movie gives us no reason to believe anything's kind of like it doesn't have a woman in a radiator it doesn't have like alternate yeah. dimensions like Mulholland Drive it the movie it takes place in a re uh, a real space the whole time but but yeah I, I am curious if if you choose to kind of interpret it one way or the other yeah to me it it just reinforces the idea that we're in the Lumberton world. We're in the blue velvet world here. Um, just like in twin peaks, it's its own microcosm with its own rules. And, um, basically it, the dream is now ending. 
you know, we're, we're, we're leaving that world now. Um, and in this dream, you know, it's a simple story where it's a comedy because someone lives, you know, I think it was Sergio Donati who had that quote that we talked about. Um, and that's, that's what's going on. We have a simple, happy, happy ending. Um, and we, we went to a dark place. We didn't go to that super super dark place that i mentioned um we just teased it um and we uncovered some reality yeah one other um shortcut i'd say the movie takes is just kind of i I always thought this was a time jump but it's it's not um so after that that crazy scene with with sandy and um her mom and and a naked isabella rossellini and, and mclaughlin um, and she goes, uh, she gets taken to the hospital because she's just in shock. Um, he calls her from the hospital and, and she immediately forgives him. Yeah. <laughs> I always thought that that took place like weeks later, but nope. it seems like it's just that same night. And honestly, like it, it by, by if we were viewing this through the lens of any kind of, you know, like romance or rom-com they take all sorts of leaps of, of, of faith sure. with things like that. But it is kind of abrupt how she gets swept up into his plane in the first place. Their romance just is kind of like, whoa, 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 whoa. Have you seen his earring? <laughs> I did notice the earring. Yeah, yes. I got swept yeah. up in that. Yeah. I don't know yeah. about you. I mean, there's, there's plenty of appeal there. No, no denying that the chicken walk yeah. <laughs> combined with the earring. Yeah. Um, is, I mean, how can you resist? Yeah. Give me a break. Um, so yeah, I, I, I always kind of chafe a tiny bit at hey, whoa. their romance but it's but she really loves mike she's she wants it to get down on the table yeah i mean mike does definitely gets the short shrift of, of, of all the characters but we can assume he's just a boring jock so that's fine <laughs> it's and, great yeah. yeah and i don't know how much older kyle mclaughlin is i mean you know he's back in, in he's town. a college boy yeah she's a senior it's yeah. you know the classic yeah but she has a boyfriend he has this crazy you know dalliance with with uh, with isabella yeah and so it's you know like the fact that they um smooth things over so quickly based on what they've been through together makes sense um i just wanted to point that out oh but the leap in the in the uh high school scene where they just start making out and they're in love i mean it is very surreal and it is like whoa this was escalated quickly yeah, and I that's that's the power of Julie Cruz's Mysteries of Love, which yeah. is a recurring uh, musical motif throughout. And yeah, totally. You, I didn't point out earlier, um, Lynch, I mean, Julie Cruz had a career um, pretty much just alongside Lynch. I mean, he and he wrote the lyrics to the songs. He's always very hands-on as a musician himself um, with musical direction and his collaboration with um battle amante but joey cruz he was writing these ethereal you know lyrics for her so they pair perfectly with the movie obviously (laughs) absolutely and that i mean shows that david lynch you know he's really a painter he's a musician sort of like john carpenter we're getting uh you know, a polymath here. We're getting somebody who's a Renaissance man. We're getting somebody who um, is creative on multiple levels here, um, contributing as much as he can to the art form. And and that's the cool thing about film is that we have sculptures being photographed with sound. You know, it's it's a total art in some ways. I'm curious about the box office because I know 
um, they must have been skeptical. Yeah, <laughs> so basically it didn't do great at the box office when it came out. Ebert hated it, you know, got trashed. Um, but then it, 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 gained, it took a little while, but it gained a foothold. Um, and it got a VHS release immediately. Um, it it um, has a very good life in the home video. And so that's what we're seeing today is we have a luscious, um, you know, criterion Blu-ray here and that's, you know, packaged thematically with all of his other work. So he's got an oeuvre that's being very well respected, um, and taken care of by the best people who could basically. Um, and that really goes to show. And so to me, I, I, I came on this the scene with this in 2007 with the Twin Peaks uh, DVD collection, the Gold Box, when that came out. And so uh, to me personally, that's a real cultural turning point. And I saw to see um, that um, the popularity of Twin Peaks with a new generation that happened, you know, to me it was like in the in the late aughts, it was a hot thing that was just really cool and you had to check it out. And then by the, you know, by 2017, it was kind of passe for me a little bit. It was like, Oh my God, twin peaks again and stuff. So now revisiting David Lynch in a new way in the 2020s feels a little bit more genuine to me because I, it doesn't feel as trendy. Lynch took off in such a huge way um, that it, it was almost just a little uh, hard for me to grapple with for a few years there. But that, uh, but because I genuinely just love the director so much, um, I really feel like he's come full circle, and it, it's not just some fad um, that got I, popular well, again. You can stream Blue Velvet on Max, the platform formerly known as HBO. And, um, yeah, or like we mentioned several times, there's a, a gorgeous Criterion collection um, edition of it. So, yeah, I think, I mean, as we've noted, we could talk about this movie forever. We could talk in circles because so many uh, thoughts about it are, are constantly running through my head. But this was a great opportunity to kind of revisit it and, and just um, revel in it. I wanted to talk about Madman because maybe I'm just like tricked by too many other movies. You know, Sleepaway Camp has uh, a huge twist at the end. The way they set up this uh, this movie with the like the adult character who's there's a Max, and then what's the name of Madman? Madman Mars. Yeah, so there's Mars and Max, which is way too close sounding of names. I was just convinced the whole time that like he's off at poker night when all yeah, this is totally. going down. Yeah, that he was either bad and like just bringing kids there <laughs> to to slaughter them, or that he was <laughs> in fact Madman. And and they just kind of cut the movie abruptly when he's on the way back, and like neither is the case apparently. Yeah, that. I was never under that impression, but it's cool that you thought there was going to be like more of a reveal at the end. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a simple movie. It's very simple. They conjure Madman Mars and he kills him, you know, except yeah. for one. Um, and so, you know, from my perspective, 
one of the great things about Mad Men. So I had a great time watching it. It was really fun. Um, uh, one of the things I like about it, of course, is the music. Uh, Stephen Horlick is his name, uh, and you know, really cool synth. Um, and that's the intro to me is just one of my all-time favorite summer camp slasher scenes, where the the, the synth music descends and you get the cool credit sequence in the red. And I really liked how we had the trailers. I'm pretty sure it was the Mad Max yep. trailer beforehand. Um, so really, Hannah did a good job of sequencing the um, revival trailers into that intro. It was just really well timed and. And then uh, I think it was the big Wednesday trailer after that. And so it was just a really special intro. Um, and then we immediately get into Max's campfire tale. And yep. that's just a, I, a, such a special scene. And, you know, the one character I teased for uh, when we talked about it in the preview episode was Max um, as being, you know, one of the great characters in the movie. But the one I didn't mention that we should definitely mention is TP. Yeah, so the whole, so I'm a little fuzzy on, so TP is the guy who wears a belt buckle that says TP. Hell yeah. Okay, it just came back to me. Um, He's the one in the hot tub. (laughs) Should you feel it too? Please let your feelings through. Get a grip on us too. Don't need words to know. Don't need words to know. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of the tropes that you expect in the post Friday, the immediate wake of Friday yeah. the Thirteenth, where um, movies are kind of copying that formula to varying degrees of success. I thought this was interesting because. Uh, this is just me like dumping questions on you, I guess. But yeah, like, yeah, dump them. The the this is a fall camp for kids, like in between um, October, like before they go back home for Thanksgiving or something. Like the, the whole <laughs> camp part of it, yeah, super not really explained <laughs> and developed, and it's kind of awesome. Like, yeah, just, the like, kids the, are, and then they just kind of leave yeah. the kids in a cabin and ignore yeah. them. Yeah, which is you know the right move. I yeah. mean, they're safest not going out and in yeah. one one person solo missions looking for <laughs> looking for the other person that disappeared and then getting picked off, you know, in yeah. in uh, typical fashion. But so it's but my point is, aside from you know yeah. logical confusion, is we get the 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 scenery and the setting is more um, you know brown leaves and fall setting than summer. And um, that's just because of the budget. Uh, so they were just filming <laughs> against time. Right. And they, I think they, in the special features, they talk about how they painted leaves oh. green to like try to preserve the fact that they were ter- all turning brown and stuff. So it's, you're very astute. I didn't really notice any of that, but yeah. So they, it's supposed to be set in summer. I believe so. Okay. Well, then that, I was giving it kind of, um, I, I didn't notice that because I thought there was some like offhanded line that the kids are about to go back home. And I, I was like, oh, for, for Thanksgiving. But also um, Sleepaway Camp had the exact same thing. I One thing 
I love about that is just the the opening like um, yeah. aerial views of the the camp, and clearly it's fall. Like it's yeah. beautiful um, uh, foliage, and it's it's red and and gold and brown instead of green. And then I think most of the rest of the movie looks like summer, but um, this movie takes place you know not surprisingly at night it's mostly just the course of like one night right so we get them building towards dawn and sometimes you can see like any horror movie you can like see too much light coming in the windows or or whatever the director Joe Gione had a really singular vision for the movie and he you know was a perfectionist and had a very clear idea of each shot and how it wanted to go so it's a very for the budget and for the type of movie that it is it's extremely meticulously made which is very unusual um, and cool Um, and I think that really stands up on repeated viewings and kind of uh, why it's become it's it's gaining a lot of traction since the 2015 vinegar syndrome blu-ray so i i think that uh just it looks really good and that was something that was just for this viewing you know this was the first movie i watched with our brand new projector in that theater oh cool and i was just blown away you know and it was cool also that you know some of the uh film was damaged you know the restoration you probably saw the scratch marks in it and stuff yep. so it was just a cool um moment where i was just seeing a you know a brand new pre- uh projector with a 4k restoration on it and this cool cult classic and i just felt really you know it was really special to be able to see how clear it was and it just felt really authentic the same time with you know the scratches and 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 uh and also how the music sounded and and that's something that just really connects with uh, connected with the audience when I saw it, you know, especially the hot tub scene. Yep. So that's, I love the hot <laughs> the, tub scene. The, it just goes around and like a, this circular camera move, that 70s style show almost for like, they're just circling each other for um, a minute and a half yeah. before uh, engaging in, in whatever they engage in. Were there any like kills or kind of since it is a slasher after all that that you wanted to point out? Definitely the head and in, in in the truck. Yeah, <laughs> I love the head in the truck. That's that's a good yeah. Answer. Like oh, what's wrong with the fan belt? It's yeah. <laughs> oh, it's yeah. probably a, a decapitated head. Yeah, um, and it has one of my favorite moments of just at the end the final girl she goes back to his house and it's just ah, it's just to me it's just. Why? Why are you doing that? It's that perfect. I love having that that feeling when I watch a horror movie of like the protagonist is doing something stupid. This <laughs> whole just, movie is yeah. is definitely that. I yeah. mean, right from the the moment. Let's. That's the other reason I thought Max was in on it because yeah. he tells this story and he's like, "Whatever you do, don't inv- don't evoke yeah. him. Don't and say Richie his name." Completely evokes. Yeah, him. and yeah. then they're just taunting him the whole right from the start and and. Mars is immediate immediately shows up like it's, yeah. there's no real delay there nope. and then um one of the characters that that hangs one of the guys that 
lasts pretty long is just like in his house, like creeping around for most of it. <laughs> there's definitely um, there's a yeah. a full on Texas Chainsaw Massacre meat hook. Um, yep. homage would be a nice way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then my favorite moment of gore, um, which isn't a kill, I don't think, um, is the cheek punch. Cheek punch. Yeah. He totally. like he like punches a hole in <laughs> in, in one of the characters' cheeks. So that that's that was like a sign of his strength and and um there's also the king Ar- arthur kind of um yeah. axe that can't be taken out of the log by any mere mortal yeah. only mars only so mars you know yeah. that's going to be chekhov's axe um at some point it's 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 a fun movie i guess i just kind of left it like i can't believe that some of these illogical i thought they were gonna just have some obvious twist at the end that that he was like at least just bringing the kids there yep like every year and i think that i mean we're really seeing the budget that they had to work with and we're comparing it to like a lot of other movies that we're kind of used to seeing which is why didn't they do more why didn't they have you know and that and and that's kind of an interesting thing is that you can tell this movie has got some potential and it leaves you wanting more yeah. it really does and it and that was the kind of the thing i on this viewing and this is probably the last comment i i have really is just that when i was watching it i was uh you know watching the the female counselors and the male counselors and i and i started to think about them and analyze them and and, and i was just like john stop it Yep. This is just a movie. It's <laughs> just kills. This is don't bring gender politics. This is this is uh, a movie that's simple and straightforward, and it's not about overanalyzing it. And but I think the music is really groovy, and I love um, the you know don't wor- don't need words to know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so. They definitely sing um, one of the like. I guess they sing the story of Mars at, at the, the end. Yeah, very uh, My Bloody Valentine style. Yeah. And that's that's a great moment. And it just, it really, yeah, it really makes you feel like this is a real slasher. This is an OG, you know, serious slasher that, that should be in the pantheon as opposed to just, you know, a random one. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad I got some of my questions answered. I'm glad you did the homework and, and um, watched some of those interviews and... Yeah, it was a fun additional entry into the camp slasher genre um, that I can add to my my list whenever I'm in the mood. Lore of the campfire, telling of his horror, lost in the woods with the madman and the stars. Don't laugh at the tales. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We are so excited we get to do this. If you want to follow along, then you can search Academy Theater Podcast on Spotify or Apple or anywhere else. And thanks to Doorman. All right, well, we'll see you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.